Welcome, dear listeners, to another captivating episode of the Conversation Cabin podcast. I'm your fearless host, Farah, And tonight, we embark on a journey together. A journey that takes us deep into the darkest recesses of the human psyche. We're about to peel back the layers of mystery that has haunted the collective consciousness for years. The infamous Jameson family murder case. Now, before we proceed, I invite you to indulge me in a moment of introspection. Picture this. You wake up one morning surrounded by a seemingly idyllic life, a loving family, a cozy home, and a community filled with familiar faces. Life is good, or so you believe, but then, out of nowhere, tragedy strikes. Out of nowhere, your sense of safety is shattered. The very foundation of your existence is called into question. It's a chilling thought isn't it? The notion that something so sinister could happen to you or someone you hold dear. That's precisely the essence of this case, and that's exactly why we're talking about it tonight. I want to make you stop and think to consider the fragility of our perceived security and to dwell upon the possibility that the unexpected horrors that plagued the Jameson family could strike any one of us. So as we embark on this journey together, I implore you to keep an open mind, brace yourself for the unnerving twists and turns that lie ahead, and most importantly, allow yourself to immerse in the narrative, to empathize with the victims, and to ask yourself the question that lurks deep within your subconscious what if this ever happens to me or someone I know? Are you ready to plunge into the depths of the Jameson family murder case? Then buckle up, cabin crew, for the riveting journey that awaits. Unraveling the enigma, the bewildering Jameson family murder case starts now. Conversation Cabin Podcast. All right, folks, get ready to go on a wild ride. This case is a situation that I'm sure 
most, if not all, of you are familiar with. Seriously, it's been all over the place. YouTube videos, short social media documentaries, you name it. It's just one of those cases that is so mind-boggling. It seems like everyone knows about it. But let me break it down for you, talking about a disappearance that kicks off a whole criminal saga. And boy, it is confusing. Nothing seems to make sense in this case. It's like a big jigsaw puzzle with missing pieces. And to make it even more bizarre, to me, I think there is some kind of paranormal element thrown into the mix. More, I don't know how you want to say it, maybe even supernatural or just, there's just something that doesn't sit right with me. But when I think about it, it does bring me back to an eerie case, which I'm sure you all know of, the Cecil Hotel and the Elisa Lamb case. That one has a bunch of theories and a massive following. It's almost like it veers into this sensationalized ghost story. And when I watched that recording of her in that elevator and the way that she would peek out and look to the left, to the right... Yet there was like no one that came into view that you could see she was talking to. Very, just very scary. And how does she get up to the roof with no one seeing her? And oh my gosh, that was just, I'm still studying that case to this day. Always trying to search if there are some new fragments to the case that anyone has come out with or any other even theories, because I love to listen to other people's theories of cases. But we're going to explore it all and try to make sense of the chaos. Let's move on to the specifics. So we have the family members, Bobby, 44, Sherilyn, 40, and their daughter, Madison. Six years old, I just... I really couldn't find much about Bobby's younger years, except he had a rather tumultuous upbringing that shaped his experiences and decisions later in life. He was born into a modest family, faced his fair share of challenges. Growing up, he witnessed a turbulent household environment marked by financial difficulties, and strange relationships. As a young boy, Bobby struggled to find stability and security. It's life moving frequently. He had to adapt to new schools and make new friends, which often led to feelings of isolation and uncertainty. I can definitely relate to Bobby's struggles as far as the turbulent household environment. I'm not my mom and my stepdad, but my mother and I. She made my life a absolute living hell, if you want to know the truth. She physically and mentally abused me since I was 
three years old. And that was actually what created the estrangement between her and my grandparents because before their estrangement, my grandmother had told me years later, of course, when they were allowed back into our family, that when I was a baby and my mother was a young mom, and don't get me wrong, I was a young mom too, and it's very hard. I get it. But with that being said, abuse is never the answer. And from what my grandmother told me, it was one night and I was crying my head off. And my mother was just pulling out her hair pretty much. And my grandmother was, give her, give her to me. And my mom had me in her arms. Well, then that set her off, the fact that my grandmother was asking my mom to hand me over to her. And instead, my mother threw me into my crib from five feet away. And my grandmother said that I bounced off the crib mattress, almost out of the crib. Because think about it. I'm, this was when I was like one year old or less. Yeah, there's that. And growing up, my mother took her bipolar out on me, which then in turn made me, not that it made me bipolar, I was already going to be bipolar because I came from her. But it just accentuated my bipolar even more because of how much trauma she did to my brain. I'm talking the, the type of abuse that she did. For instance, I was five years old and to punish me, even when I didn't do anything wrong. So it wasn't even considered punishment. It was just how she treated me. She would put me down in the basement. And I don't know anyone that's, you know, in their late 30s, 40s. If you remember in the 70s, early 80s, you could get those, what were they, like Halloween decorations, Christmas decorations that were like, you would put them in your window and they were made of like wax. They were really hard and sharp. She would make me stand on those down in a dark basement for hours. And this is when I was three, four, five years old. Yeah, really crazy. So I definitely know... With Bobby, when you grow up in a household that is turbulent, it's going to contribute to how you live your life in the future. So when I read that as a young boy, Bobby struggled to find stability and security in his life, despite the hardships that he faced, he was described by those who knew him uh, a determined individual. He had dreams and aspirations, yearning for a better future for himself. Sherilyn Jameson had a complex and intriguing early life. She was born into a family. They grew up in a small town. And I actually was in a rural living situation. All of my friends lived in town. 
And then I lived out of town. So then when I would want to call my friends, it was all long distance and I would ring up $700 phone bills. So Sherilyn had a reputation for being a bright and independent young woman, always eager to explore her interests and pursue her passions. From a young age, she had a deep love for nature and the outdoors and would love to go hiking. And that's important to me covering in this case is to humanize them. They're not just victims. They had personalities. They had hopes and dreams just like everyone else. And I'm trying to humanize them more as Bobby and Sherilyn, what their life was made of before and up to this all happened. Okay, so Sherilyn and Bobby became friends over the summer of 2002. Now, Sherilyn had been married prior Bobby, and she had a son with her prior marriage. But of course, we all know the percentage of young marriages when you have a baby very early in that young marriage. The chances of it resulting in a separation is pretty high. In this case, her marriage did result in a separation and a sizable move as well to Oklahoma. This is where her family is from. And she had already faced many difficulties in life. This was another reason why I told you all about my experience as a young child living in a turbulent home, because as you'll find out in the story, but I'll try to get it out there right now. Sherilyn had mental health issues. Don't know if it was bipolar, but this is, this is how I connected so much with her and a little bit of Bobby too. Just already having, to have something like that in your life, it makes your life so much harder, especially when you're young. But anyway, for her meeting Bobby was like, getting a huge breath of fresh air. According to those who knew the couple, they fell deeply and quickly in love. They had a strong romantic connection. They were incredibly in love for a year before their lovely daughter, Madison, was born. And that was on August 1st of 2003. Bobby saw Madison as the center of his universe. The love of a daddy and his daughter is so strong. And you can see some of the home movies that they would have that were shown when the family had disappeared. You could definitely see the love in his eyes that he had for his daughter. And I, too, had children young and they were all that I had since I didn't have my family wasn't close as normal families should be but in a documentary from 2010 the Jamisons love and family dynamics were explored along with their love and support for one another they shared many things in common a mishap though completely changed their world so in November 2003, Madison had only been a few months early at this time, and they were just starting out together. 
what happens? Bobby was involved in a terrible car accident. From what I read, he was going around a bend and two approaching vehicles might have been present, but yeah, he was badly hurt as a result of the incident and he wouldn't be able to simply recover from this because he had a very bad back injury. And having a hurt back and neck, that leads to chronic pain. And chronic pain leads to medication, which we all know that can get out of whack in a very short time. And he had to take medication just to finish simple tasks in the house to help out. He had no choice but to give up on his career because of how much pain he was in. And then he was forced to change to disability, which men, they do not like. They don't like to think of themselves as not being that alpha male in the house. They're supposed to feel like I can protect my wife, my child. I can bring in the money for the bills. I don't want my wife and my kid to have to worry. So I can really feel for him at this time where they were young parents, and that's scary to go through something like that. But yeah, it had to be stressful to ensure that they had enough money to support Madison. There's much to be concerned about. I'm sure if any one of us had anything happen like that, we would feel that same stress, that same worry. However, the Jameson family remained as committed as ever. They decided to take the next step and you all know what that means yes to get married the couple traveled to arizona in order to establish themselves they moved to eufaula oklahoma and i hope i said that right so they continue to create the life that they've always wanted while raising their daughter but after that it seemed as though there were new problems every year it just seemed like this family had this black cloud hovering over them, making everything difficult. And on top of that feeling, Sherilyn had struggles for a year at this point with bipolar. And again, I know all too well about trying to raise a family when you're a young mom and then having this. It was really hard for my daughters. I would make impulsive decisions that would pull them through the mud with me through all my crazy and stupid decisions that I made. But her family claimed that she was known for abruptly starting and stopping her medications. People like Sherilyn and I, we constantly stopped taking our medications because one symptom of bipolar is that you forget things. Like your short-term memory might be off. And that was my experience too. I would start taking a medication, a few medications, and then you forget to take them. So that already makes it then a harder cycle. And then something great would happen in my life and I would think, oh, then I needed this. So then I'm going to stop my medication. That is not the right way to do it. I did that so many times in my life. Sherilyn was stuck in a similar cycle. Once she stopped taking the pills, her life would get better. And that's just a fluke. Trust me. Geraldine's family assert that. 
when she would stop taking her medication. The sweet person that her family knew, that sweet person would change completely. She would have alleged outbursts of rage and hatred, wildly reported from the family. It was very challenging. All parties involved. A lot of your family and friends think that they have to tiptoe around you because they don't know what your attitude is going to be for that day. And something so simple can set you off. Sherilyn had stopped taking her medications. She was unable to work due to her disability on top of everything. I had always asked myself that question if I should because, again, when you're not on medication, you can flip out and you can say things that you don't mean and having a job and doing that is, is it doesn't work. Their daily lives were extremely difficult and stressful at times, but Sherilyn experienced one of her lowest points after a blow in 2007. Her sister, and this is crazy, her sister with whom she was extremely close with was the victim of this freak accident. A bee had stung her sister on her tongue, causing her throat to close. How crazy is that? And her sister unexpectedly passed away. Sherilyn was struck hard by this. Her mental issues just got worse. Another tragic occurrence yet again. Another blow to a young family, young parents. Okay, so now we move on. Bob D., who is Bobby's father, and Starlet, who is Bobby's mother, They've been wed for more than 40 years. But unfortunate events within their marriage resulted in a contentious divorce. Imagine what happens to a family when the head of that family breaks up, just crumbles. The entire family is affected. And that has negative effects. It's unfortunate to say that the Jameson family experienced exactly that. There was a lot of discord within the family, according to how Bobby Dean's father, Bob Dean, had been described. Bob Dean was having a lot of issues with other family members related to him and Starlet's divorce that, as a result... Numerous family members, including his own son, Bobby, applied for a protective order against him. That when you have to get a protective order over your own father, something is just not good in that family. That core of that family is just discombobulated. But this protective order, Bobby claimed that his father had threatened to kill his family, not once, but twice. On one occasion, and this was in November 2008, Bobby Dean attempted to ram his car into Bobby. And a second time, in April 2009, so November, December, January, February, March, it was five months between the two incidents. On top of that, Bobby stated in this protective order that his father was involved in multiple nefarious things such as, quote, prostitution, drugs, gains, 
and that his father was a very dangerous individual who believed he was above the law. He really conveyed the impression that his father was just a lousy person and very dangerous, and that he was taking his father's threats very seriously, and even went on to state that his entire family felt scared. In all seriousness, they feared that this man would appear and murder them. But regrettably, this protective order exists for one reason or another. It ultimately turned out to be rejected, though. Thus, the Jamesons never felt safe around Bobby Dean. With all these different stressors present, it goes without saying that when you face threats from your family, you also lack that sense of security. If you don't feel safe with your family, then can you feel safe around? That's the one group of people that you should feel secure around and that they have your back. And when I'm talking about this, Bob Dean, let me tell you a story about my real father. So when I was in my early teens, I, for years, these reoccurring nightmares. I was very little. My mom was holding me. There were flashing blue and red lights out the front window. I saw my Aunt Cindy, which was my dad's sister, screaming. My real father was holding a gun to my head. I was crying. My mom was crying. And I had asked her, I keep having these reoccurring nightmares. Is this just a nightmare or did this really happen? And she looked down to the floor. I could tell that she didn't want to tell me the truth, but that I deserved it. And she said, yes, that did happen. I wanted to leave your father and I was trying to hide from it. And he found us. He said that that if she didn't let him see me, then he was going to take me out and pretty much my, yeah, that was, that was crazy because that's something that you see like in a lifetime movie. And here it really happened to me, but moving on. So Sherilyn wanted to attempt to file a suit against her ex-husband for child support, like for back pay. He owed money for roughly 40 months, according to records, totaling around $30,000. That's a significant sum of money for even back then, 2003, 2004. And it's funny, my father was the same way. I think when my mom left him, he was ordered to pay a measly $25 a week what the hell is that's like chump change and I guess he didn't and I don't know if my mother ever took him to like court to try to get it or if he ever had to go to jail because of it but yeah I don't know why it's always a thing for fathers to pay child support for their children that they made to attempt to file a suit against her ex-husband for child support like for back pay he owed money for roughly 40 months, according to records, totaling around $30,000. That's a significant sum of money for even back in 2003, 2004. 
and it's funny, my biological father was this way. I think when my mother left him, he was ordered to pay a measly $25 a week. Like, the what the hell is that? <laughs> and I guess maybe in the late 70s, that was a lot. I don't know. But my father didn't pay it. And I don't know if my mother ever tried to put him in jail for it. I don't think he ever was. However, the situation took an unexpected turn at some point amidst the legal dispute, an urgent custody ruling was made regarding her son. The exact details of the ruling are unclear due to limited online information about it, but typically such rulings are only issued in serious matters, serious situations. It was reported that Sherilyn's son publicly expressed a desire to be with his father, indicating that it seemed like he had some influence over the custody. Because he's only 12 years old at the time. So I don't really think 12 years old boys really know what they want. But he also mentioned that his mother had been exhibiting strange behavior recently, which further solidified his presence to live with his father. And we all know that a lot of times we hear these cases where the father is manipulating the kids. And it's just to punish the mom. That's what they want to do because she left them. And I just, it's, that's not right. But also the way that she had banked on possibly getting that back pay. And now the tables had turned and he was going to take her for child support. She actually tried to take her own life. Because she, she lost custody of her son in July 2009. So that's the kind of mindset she was in. And I don't blame her because that... But then again, we can't say that it's not hard for men either. I can't be a woman and just take a woman's side because I'm a woman. As I've said before on my show. But And it hurts men, I know, just the same. But when you're doing things shitty manipulating your kids that you shouldn't do that you don't you don't use the kids but she was taken to the hospital where she remained for some time before being released back to her family in a more stable condition i'm i'm hoping but shortly after her release a new issue arose concerning her other child which of course addison Madison had recently started kindergarten at a local elementary school and experienced a traumatic incident on the playground, resulting in the loss of both her front teeth. Oh. Bobby and Sherilyn, the woman's family, which is Sherilyn's family, immediately withdrew Madison from the school and chose to homeschool her as they had already been through so much, and there were rumors circulating that they were considering taking legal action against the school. At this breaking point, Bobby and Sherilyn decided to make a significant change in their lives, not just a few adjustments. They decided they wanted to uproot their entire family and move to the secluded mountains, where they believed they could find healing and a fresh start. 
And I think a lot of us feel that way. I know that Jake and I left Florida because we needed to worry about ourselves and recharge and regroup. And I think the best thing was moving to this secluded place in Tennessee where there was no one around for more than an hour. Like you would have to drive an hour to get to civilization. And I think it helped us focus on what needed to be done to get us where we are right now. So I definitely agree with them that sometimes that could be a great move for you. Not for everybody, but... So Bobby began searching for properties online and came across a 40-acre piece of raw land in the Sons Boys Mountains. It's spelled S-A-N-S-B-O-I-S, Mountains. This property offered the opportunity for the family to build their dream home, but in the meantime, they planned to live in a shipping container that they already owned. This secluded and peaceful setting aligned with their preference for solitude and spending quality time. The location they chose was extremely isolated as it was situated in Latimer County with a population of only around 9,000 people. And when I was researching this case, it seemed they felt this was their only option. However, instead of the fresh start that they hoped for, it tragically resulted in the end of their lives. On October 16th, 2009, at approximately 3 p.m., the Latimer County Sheriff's Department received a call from concerned hunters in the area of Panola Mountain and Sons Point Mountain. The hunters reported a truck sitting on the side of a dirt road, which happened to be a dead end high up in the treacherous mountains. This was an uncommon sight, as it used to be an old oil. Initially, the hunters assumed the truck belonged to someone working in the vicinity. Nevertheless, due to the dangerous mountain terrain and the possibility of someone being lost or wandering, they felt it was important to inform the authorities. However, at first, the authorities were not overly concerned as the truck had only been there for a few hours and it could have belonged to a worker. Hours later, when the hunters contacted them again, they revealed that people had claimed to have seen the truck there for several days. So this new information prompted the Latimer County Sheriff's Department to investigate further. Upon reaching the vehicle, they were immediately struck by the feeling that something just didn't feel right. Something felt very wrong. Looking inside the truck's windows, they noticed a weak and emaciated dog clinging to life. Oh my God. Acting swiftly, they rescued the dog, realizing that it had survived by eating its own feces. 
And this discovery raised numerous questions for the authorities. How did owners of the truck, along with their dog, end up abandoning their vehicle in such a remote location? As they pondered this, more and more questions began to accumulate. The initial fear was that someone may have become lost on the mountains, perhaps someone who had come to explore some hunting areas or simply take a walk in the mountains, and they're just out there going to camp. But this wasn't an ordinary mountain. It's described as being filled with ravines, cliffs, and treacherous terrain. Its thick vegetation made navigation extremely difficult with a triple canopy obstructing visibility. If someone had indeed gotten lost, there was a high likelihood that they were injured or even deceased somewhere out there. Deputies were searching the immediate vicinity for any signs of a family, but unfortunately, heavy rain had washed away any potential tracks or evidence that could aid in search. And let me pause right here because if any of you have watched that 411, that guy that did that documentary, the key points, like the profile of a missing person, remember what one of the key points is, is that a lot of the cases, when someone goes missing, it's like right away, it's either snowing, like some big blizzard or some big rainstorm to wash away evidence. It's just weird that it does that to so many of these cases. Yeah, and if you haven't watched that 411 missing, you need to. But the deputies decided to regroup. And as I'm sure you can imagine, the situation escalated from a possible lone individual being lost to an entire family, including a small young child. And the fact that they had left their personal belongings, jackets, even their dog, suggested they intended to return to the vehicle shortly after stepping out, or maybe they were taking pictures. Who knows? However, none of this made any sense to the authorities. Five to six deputies were dispatched to search the surrounding area, hoping to find any trace of the family. But, of course, unfortunately, the heavy rain had erased any potential trails. Further investigation revealed that the Jameson family had left their home on October 7th to visit the mountains and explore that 40-acre property that they were considering buying for their move. But they quickly became disoriented due to the lack of road signs, and confusing dirt roads. Fortunately, they encountered a helpful individual who provided them with directions and even shared the GPS coordinates for the property that they were interested in. The encounter left a positive impression with the family appearing excited about the prospect moving to the area. So see, there was, they even came along someone 
as they were heading to those mountains and they even showed that person oh look this is where we're this is where we're on their way to it's a place we're going to buy and think about moving building a house so you see that their attitude wasn't somber or anything even the fact that they just talked to this person shows that they were happy it's not like they were trying to be secluded from anyone or not talk to anybody or not give them coordinates of where they were but they decided to return to the property the following day on October 8th and on this day they had a scheduled meeting with the realtor responsible for selling the property so again the seven they went to go find it themselves so they could call this realtor and say hey we definitely are interested and this can we meet up can you tell us a little bit more about the property so again if anyone is wanting to end their life or be lost or be gone you don't talk to strangers and you certainly don't call a realtor to set up a meeting this suggests that october 8th is the day that they went missing leaving their truck abandoned on the side of the dead end dirt road GPS data revealed that they had traveled further along the road on that day, exploring various areas. They even embarked on a 15 to 20 minute walk before returning to their car and starting their journey back down the mountain. The unexpected happened. The GPS was never used again and inexplicably, their truck remained locked by the side of the road with all their belongings, dog. And again, their belongings they found were coats, cameras, cell phone, GPS. Of course, again, the poor dog. No one knew where they had gone. It wasn't surprising that nobody had reported the family missing for over a week because the Jamesons, they were private. They had a tendency to be out of touch they were to go off the grid without informing anyone or even calling people for weeks or even months. In fact, it was not uncommon for them to disappear without a trace and without any explanation. So the lack of communication during this week-long period did not raise any alarms. Moreover, it was unclear if they had even mentioned their plan to visit any properties as they were to keep their plans to themselves, adding to the mystery. Madison had recently been withdrawn from school, so her absence did not attract attention either. In essence, nobody knew they were missing. However, the passage of time without contact and the fact that they could be exposed to the elements without any provisions or proper clothing made the situation potentially dangerous. As a result, the authorities decided to track their last known location up the mountain, hoping to find evidence of them camping there. So far, there was nothing but the truck. Following the GPS coordinates, they reached a spot higher up the mountain. They found multiple shoe prints, some of which were the size of a child, suggesting Madison had been there. Furthermore, they discovered a photograph of Madison, believed to be the last picture taken of her. 
This photo stirred speculation among friends and family who questioned its authenticity and wondered if someone else had taken that picture. They found Madison's posture and expression unusual, suggesting that something might have been amiss. Now, come on, all of us that have had children know that they don't always cooperate when you want to take pictures with them. Some, they're just screaming their heads off, they're uncomfortable, so while the photo raised questions, it may simply just depict a six-year-old behaving typically. Despite extensive searches and media coverage, no leads emerged. The Latimer County Sheriff's Department deployed numerous resources, including cadaver and air scent dog search parties on foot, horseback, and using ATVs, helicopters, and airplanes. And actually, this was, let me see, it was the largest search party that Oklahoma ever had. Over a thousand volunteers. There were 13 dog teams. Yeah, this was an all-out, like, mission, of course. However, the dense vegetation known as, quote, triple canopy, hindered aerial searches, leaving ground searchers to navigate the challenging terrain. Eventually, the initial search was called off so they can, so they could devise a more focused approach. But the community rallied together and continued searching, utilizing their knowledge of the land to cover the area effectively. While the searchers were ongoing, investigators thoroughly examined the Jameson's truck and belongings, hoping to find answers. Instead, they encountered more questions. Bobby's phone contained the last photograph of Madison, but it also made multiple calls to his voicemail 12 days after the family had disappeared. Some speculated that the dog, Maisie, even accidentally dialed the voicemail by stepping on the phone, which could be plausible. Funny, but plausible. Regardless, it definitely was unusual. It was unclear what significance this had as authorities did not focus on it. But another discovery in the car shifted the investigation's direction. A bank bag containing $32,000 in cash was found beneath the seat raising more questions about the family's intentions and actions. Before returning to their car and beginning their descent down the mountain, everything came to a halt. The GPS was never used. The truck remained locked on the side of the road with all of their belongings, including their dog, inside. Nobody had an idea where they had gone, and since the Jamesons valued their privacy, no one reported them missing for over a week. Their tendency to keep to themselves and not communicate regularly made it seem normal for them to be out for an extended period of time. In addition, they had recently pulled daughter Madison out of school, so there was no attendance records to raise alarm either. However, the fact that they had not taken any 
provisions with them. Raised some eyebrows too. Based on the available evidence, authorities developed a theory that the family was forced to stop and encountered someone they recognized. They believed the family either willingly left or were forced to leave the truck, leaving behind important belongings, and their beloved dog suggested that it was unlikely they left voluntarily. However, there was no evidence of forced entry or a struggle inside the vehicle. Despite these suspicions, authorities could not find any concrete signs to support their theory. The sheriff at that time, Israel Bochamp, even said that most investigators would have loved to have the amount of evidence that they had in the Jameson case, but despite having all of that, they weren't able to solidly go in any sort of direction. And there was a couple different things that I that I came across that they were putting out for theories. First of all, I want to go back to Sharon Lynn. Sharon Lynn had believed that there were spirits in her house. She actually dabbled in the supernatural. And the container that was near their home, that container that they were living in, she had graffitied it. She had painted like witches and black cats on it. She even had said before that she casted demons out of someone. So you have that, and then you add her mental health struggles on top of that. So a lot of people started wondering if this was some type of satanic cult that they had became members of. Both Bobby and Sherilyn started to believe that their house was haunted. And I don't know if this was something entirely new to the family, for Bobby, it seems it was, but I have seen it described in a lot of the stuff that I read about Sherilyn that she had always been like a spiritual person, that she frequently said that she could speak to the spirits. And it seemed that they were trying to find a way to fix whatever they believed was going on. So Bobby and Sherilyn started to attend prayer meetings, started to speak to a pastor named Gary Brandon. And he was able to jot down all the different things that the Jamesons had told him in those weeks leading up to their disappearance. And Bobby was incredibly concerned about these spirits that he felt were in their home. He and Pastor Gary Brandon, the last time he had seen these spirits was on October 2nd. So just days before the entire family vanished. He said that he had seen two to four spirits walking on the family's roof of their home in the middle of the night, and he was very disturbed by this. Bobby felt that these were bad spirits, that they were potentially dangerous, and all of these different meetings with this pastor, he would describe deeper what was going on, and he expressed that he had actually, that he had tried natural remedies that he bought a satanic Bible as well, and was trying to look into that to see if there was any way that he could cast these spirits away from his home. Even it got to the point where he started to ask the pastor if there were, quote, special bullets for spiritual 
warfare. And according to those who knew Bobby, specifically his mother, this was not like him. This was abnormal. He had never claimed to see spirits before. And we all have heard of those tragic cases where a loved one kills their children or another loved one because demons told them to do it or they're just hearing voices that say there's something inside your loved one. That's Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. She was the blonde woman that had killed her children, Tylee Ryan and Joshua. She had met Chad Daybell. He was like a very spiritual person. I think they were more like the end times type of people. But I remember reading that Lori had, her children had certain numbers. And so they had to be taken out. Now this information about Bobby, while it's not been publicly stated if he struggled with any sort of mental health disorder, it seems that this was just random out of nowhere that he was getting so worked up about these spirits. But Sherilyn was claiming the exact same things and also telling the pastor that there were spirits in the home. But her version of the events were very different from Bobby's and didn't seem quite as paranoid. She did agree that there were about two to four spirits that were living in the family's home, but she didn't feel threatened by them at all. And even said that she had dealt with spirits multiple times before in her life and that she and Madison could go could both speak to the dead. This is why I had brought up earlier in this episode about Elisa Lamb. There were things going around that she was playing that elevator game that would take you to some other world or people were asking when they would watch her on the CCTV when she was in the elevator, how she would peek out and then look left, look right. And then she stepped out and was talking to someone at some point. We were all asking ourselves, who is she talking to? They're not coming in on the camera. Is it a spirit? What is going on? This is on a whole different level. Sherilyn had said that the two to four spirits were not a threat to them. She actually stated that she believed they were angels coming to their family in the form of children, and they had names for them, Michael and Emily. She did not seem super stressed about them, and that even Madison had befriended one of these children's spirits and would regularly talk to them. So when I was sitting here thinking maybe Bobby and Sherilyn were doing drugs, how is Madison talking to spirits. I'm sure they're not giving Madison drugs, but then again, if they're doing drugs, they're seeing and hearing things or think that Madison is talking to children, but she's really not. Sherilyn actually thought of herself as a witch to her neighbors. She sprawled graffiti all over the side of the shipping container that they were going to use if they had moved to the 40 acres. She put things about like how God is the only way and witches don't like when their cats are killed because I guess one or a few of her cats had shown up dead and Sherilyn believed that they were being poisoned by the neighbors. 
So she wrote this message as like a warning to the neighbors to stop poisoning her cats because she was essentially a witch. She would invite neighbors inside for witches brew, just things along those lines that don't seem normal. But obviously, information that you get, you start to question what exactly their mental state was at this time. And this focus on their odd behavior was just exacerbated when they found very odd security footage from the family home. Apparently, there were two cameras outside of the Jameson family home pointing towards their driveway. I had actually put a snippet of it on my Instagram post advertising for this episode coming out. And these cameras had actually been installed by Bobby's mom, Starlet, after Bobby's dad threatened the family. He got protection orders against him because Starlet felt very unsafe in her home, so she got herself cameras too, and she wanted to be able to protect her son, her granddaughter, and her daughter-in-law, so she put up cameras for them as well, and it actually captured the Jameson family packing up their car to leave the morning of the 8th. And I will say that when some people were talking about this camera footage, they're saying that they don't see anything odd with it. But authorities are the ones that watch the entire thing. We only got to see snippets of it on the news. And that's the part that when they're showing people, they're saying, I don't see anything odd with that. But authorities that watched the whole thing deemed it as incredibly bizarre. So the full video, you can see both Bobby and Sherilyn making multiple trips to and from the car to pack it up. And this in itself was strange. It was something that they could have probably done in two or three trips. But both Bobby and Sherilyn each made at least 20 trips back and forth from the car. And it took them an incredibly long time. And what they did during those trips was equally as strange the entire time. They're going back and forth. They don't communicate with each other a single time. It's as if they were the only ones to exist in that exact moment, which again, I go back to that paranormal, otherworldly aspect of it. Can you see? Can you see where I'm going with that? Why I would think that there were quotes. Some people said it looked as if they were in a trance like state. So then my mind takes me to an otherworldly extraterrestrial like the cults that thought they were going to be beamed up by aliens. So they all committed suicide. It, it's those little tidbits that are coming out in this case, something that is just bizarre. Or again, going back to the missing 411. These people are there one second, and then their husband or wife turns around, and in another second, they're gone. And here's another strange tidbit while they're going back and forth a few times making these trips they're seen carrying the same items back and forth 
They're seen putting things in the car and those same items back out and then bringing them back in, back out, back in a handful of times. That trance-like state where they under, oh my gosh, I know it's so far out in left field, but were they under some kind of hypnosis? And then there were also moments where both Bobby and Sherilyn would just stop and stare into the distance for a period of time. And it's also stated that there are even points where they change their clothing during making these trips. This just seems so odd. But the sheriff's department did decide to bring in a psychologist to look at it because they couldn't figure what on earth was happening here. And ultimately, it looks like Bobby and Sherilyn were on some sort of drug is what they were saying. Now, apparently the drug of choice in that area was meth. And so Perry, that information, their strange behavior, the large amount of money that they had in the car, authorities believe that this could possibly be one of the answers as to what exactly happened here. Maybe Bobby and Sherilyn were involved in using drugs. Maybe that is what caused them to believe that there were spirits. But I just don't. I'm not getting that from these two. Not at all. But the detectives were thinking, was this a potential drug deal gone wrong? But they immediately wanted to try to find out if there was any evidence whatsoever to support this theory. Because the ongoing theme throughout this entire case so far was that the theory seems all theories are plausible, but there's no concrete evidence to really support it fully or rule it out. And so the FBI actually went to the Jamesons home and conducted a very thorough search. They also searched the entire vehicle again. There were no drugs found absolutely anywhere. It seemed like a lot of people, even still to this day, cling on to this idea that they believe drugs may be responsible for whatever happened to the Jamesons, but their family strongly pushes back against this, and honestly, so do I. But there were definitely a few things that could potentially suggest that drugs may have possibly been involved when it comes to Bobby and Sherilyn, but despite those things, their family did not believe that this was all possible. Just prior to their disappearance, both Bobby and Sherilyn had lost a lot of weight, which could absolutely be due to drug use. I guess there was also something strange that Bobby had said at one point the summer prior when they were struggling with money. He said about knowing a way to get the money, but he didn't want to involve Sherilyn in that. And while that could absolutely indicate some sort of drug involvement, again, there was no evidence to suggest that whatsoever. And I'm sorry, if you're on drugs or you're a drug addict, you're messy. You're going to leave behind a mess. And Sherilyn's mother had actually stayed with them a few months prior to their disappearance. And she said that if they had been using any sort of drug, especially if it were meth, that she would have known about it. Because if you know someone that's on meth, they are back and forth, back and forth, talking a lot, um, paranoid, looking out the window, looking on the carpet, looking for little things. So yeah, 
you're definitely going to know if someone's doing that. But, and this is a little bit of evidence that I came across that helps me know that it wasn't drug use. Sherilyn had a best friend named Nikki, and Nikki had her own history of meth use. She said that being so familiar with it, she would have known right away if this was something that Sherilyn was potentially involved in using. There had never been any moment of concern where she thought that this was a possibility. Now, another thing I can throw out there is the way Bobby and Sherilyn didn't stop to talk about each other, those times when they were taking things back and forth to the house, to the truck, to the house. Maybe Sherilyn changed her mind that she didn't want to move out to the wilderness. Go back to, they made trips with the same items back and forth. Well, you would have seen them converse if Bobby is getting mad at her going, hey, I'm taking this stuff out of the house. Why the fuck are you taking it back in the house? So being that you didn't see them even talk or fight on the video, then that leads me to say they weren't arguing about moving or where they were moving to. And to the people that believe that drugs were involved in all this, if that were the case, I feel like something would have been found at the house. When you have all of these prescription bottles and things just tossed around in Bobby's car, clearly they're not like constantly cleaning everything out. But why didn't they find some sort of paraphernalia? Or where's some empty baggies? Or meth spread anywhere? Or joints? Or anything to say that they were doing any type of drug? But what on earth would cause them to behave the way that they did? Now, there was one thing that did come out of this video. We're able to take all this video footage and create inventory of what should be in the truck. And they were able to find that there was one thing missing. Sherilyn had loaded up a brown leather briefcase into the car. Obviously, we don't know what the contents are. But when authorities search the entire car, that was the one thing that was missing. A lot of people believe, including the sheriff at that time, Israel Beauchamp, that there was money within that briefcase. But regardless, it went somewhere and nobody knows where it is. But now that is the second thing known to belong to the Jameson family that has gone. A briefcase filled with who knows what and a twenty-two caliber gun. Now also, Sherilyn had allowed a man to come and rent a portion of their home. And I don't think this was a close friend of theirs. I believe it was just an acquaintance. I I just, I don't think it was an absolute stranger is what I'm trying to get at. And another reason why this man did move in was because, remember, Bobby had hurt his back was in a lot of pain. It didn't allow him to do essentially any handyman handyman work around the house, just the normal upkeep of the house. And that is like one of the worst feelings in the entire world for a man, that you can't keep up with what you have to do for your family. But this man either moved in or moved out or potentially both in the same month of July 2009 just months prior to the family disappearing. And I guess shortly after he moved in, it became 
very clear that this was not going to work out because as soon as Bobby would leave the home, leaving Sherilyn and Madison behind, this man would say some very strange, inappropriate, terrible things to Cheryl and Madison and made them both very uncomfortable. He was essentially kicked out at gunpoint. Bobby had left, leaving Sherilyn and Madison home alone, and they were sitting on the couch just trying to enjoy their day when this man walked up, looks at Sherilyn and says something along the lines of, I'm a white supremacist, and you sure do talk a lot about having Indian blood, and I believe that anyone that's not just white should die. So he essentially threatened to kill Sherilyn, and right away, she ran to get her twenty-two caliber gun and pointed the barrel right at this man, like up against his head, and said, you get out of my house right now. You will not threaten me. You will not threaten my child. You need to leave. And I guess this man, he didn't immediately leave the premises, so she actually fired two warning shots down at the ground and scared this man off the property. So think about it. Not only are you getting threats from Bob Dean, Bobby's dad, that he's going to kill your family, now you have this other crazy man threatening your family. Now, thankfully, one of this man's prescription bottles had been left behind, either in the house or Bobby's truck, so they were able to take this name match to the FBI and confirm that it's him. So the FBI set out on this manhunt to locate him. And when they finally did, I believe he was still in the area, maybe in a different city, but the U.S. Marshals went and found him, apprehended him, and he was brought in for questioning. But all of this hope that they had that this could potentially lead them to answers was all snuffed out almost immediately because while this man definitely had problems with the Jameson family, definitely threatened Cheryl Lynn, he was actually incarcerated at the time that the family went missing. So he couldn't have possibly, at least personally, been involved in whatever happened to them. And while this lead didn't seem to work, it got the wheels in motion and in terms of who else would potentially want to hurt the Jamesons? And this led to Bobby's dad, 67-year-old Bob D. Jameson. Now, as I stated in the beginning, they were having a lot of problems with Bobby's dad. And the two years leading up to their disappearance, remember, the dad threatened to kill the entire family, not once, but two times. The protection order got denied. And we know from domestic violence cases, a lot of them, when the woman goes and files the protective order, it just pisses the man off more. So in this case, it pissed off Bob Dean. Authorities believe that it was possible for Bobby Dean to have acted out on these threats. Apparently, Bobby would occasionally work for his father at one of his father's convenience stores and they had some verbal agreement that Bobby wouldn't get a paycheck or anything for his hours worked and that he would eventually be paid, but for half of his sales. 
And there was also some other agreement that he would get a certain piece of property and some cars or something. But I had a very difficult time deciphering the legal mumbo-jumbo in terms of this particular suit. It doesn't appear that he gained anything from this. And there were some resources that say that he had got some sort of money from this. That could have potentially explained the $32,000 in cash found in their car. And then there were other sources that claimed that the money could have been from a settlement from his car accidents. But I've looked at all these different court papers that they've had online for all of this, and everything says dismissed for that and doesn't mention a settlement anywhere. So I don't know if there is a settlement that maybe happened outside of court. But it turns out that just prior to the Jamesons' disappearance, Bobby's dad fell very ill, and during this time, he was in and out of hospitals and different homes and things like that to deal with whatever illness or condition that he was going through. So according to Bobby's uncle, there was no way that he could have physically been able to do anything to harm the Jameson family. And another reason that it didn't make sense is that he took everyone else off of his will and just listed Madison as the sole beneficiary. She would have received everything he wanted to pass down, everything of his to her. So when he was gone, she would have his entire legacy. So why would he have done that? If he was just going to plan on turning around and killing the entire family, including his grandfather daughter. And just to give you the sense of how confusing this case was to even the cops, Sheriff Israel Bosham said, quote, throughout this whole process, I found myself going back and forth as to what have might have happened. I'm at my wit's end. I've asked for all of the help I could get. 12 FBI agents, 3 OSBI agents, Troop Z, private investigators who have contacted me. I have belittled myself to the point where I listened to psychics, end quote. And the sheriff, Beechamp, ended up, I believe, retiring and going to do something else. This case ended up being passed along to multiple different investigators and despite family's efforts to keep it in the public eye and the oddness of this case, it did seem that things slowly began to die down. There were no more searches, no more people to roll out. There was nothing else to look into. They had already looked at what felt like every possible theory and nothing had panned out. But four years later, on November 16th, 2013, a very unexpected discovery was found. And this brought the now cold case back to the center of everyone's attention, just under three miles away from where the Jameson's truck had been found. Hunters stumble across partial remains. It appeared to be three partial sets of remains. 
all of which were face down. Did you hear what I said? They were face down, kind of lined up in a row. A call was immediately put into police and OSBI and Haskell County Sheriff's Department immediately showed up to this particular location. Everyone had a feeling that this could potentially be the Jamison family. Because what are the odds that there's another family of three that disappeared around this same location and they just so happened to all die together around the same time? And the search was so focused in this area. Remember, this was the biggest search effort for a missing person in Oklahoma's history. Over a thousand volunteers, 13 search dog teams. Yes, they were probably all saying to themselves, this is going to be it. So the FBI, OSBI, Haskell County Sheriff's Department, they immediately did a search of the surrounding area. They wanted to see if there was any sort of identification or evidence that could give them answers, maybe even a potential weapon, but they weren't able to find any of that. The remains themselves had clearly been exposed to the elements for quite some time. So it leads you to believe that these remains were put there after the search. It was obvious that they had not been buried. They were just laying on top of the earth, so they were very badly decomposed. It was essentially just a bone left, and a lot of bone was damaged. So an announcement was made that they were sending these remains off to a lab to get proper identification. But given the state of the remains, they weren't sure how long that this would all take. It actually ended up taking eight full months. On July 3rd, 2014, these remains were positively identified as belonging to Bobby, Sherilyn, and Madison. And the doctor who performed the autopsy stated that there was no way that they could figure out the cause or the manner of death. First of all, it was only partial remains. I believe they had the skulls of all three individuals, a couple of other bones, a few teeth, but it seems the majority of the remains were no longer there. On top of that, there was also, quote, carnivore or rodent damage on all of the bones. So yeah, that prevented them from being able to see what potentially happened. A lot of people began to look deeply into the way in which they were found and try to make sense of it. But like everything else, there really wasn't. There were a handful of shoes, a few fragments of clothing that were left behind. And interestingly, there was a, quote, fragment of a flexible material with a cloth material on one side that was found with Bobby Jameson. And interestingly, there was a dried flower with Madison. It could have just been something she had 
been holding on to, but there were a handful of people out there theorizing that this could have potentially been left by an attacker if this was in fact a homicide. What if this person who committed this crime had some sort of remorse and that's why the flower was there? What if there was a personal connection? A lot of people ask the question as well, what if they were this close to where the truck was found? How on earth were they themselves not located when these massive ongoing searches were occurring? I'm sure they were very frustrated, but there's really no way to 100% guarantee that you have thoroughly searched a location. It's just very difficult. However, according to the hunter that located the Jameson's remains, they were right off of a very obvious clear trail. Like they were not they weren't deep into the woods. They weren't off a ravine. They weren't hanging on the edge of a cliff. They were on top of the surface, on top of the ground, face down, right off of a clear trail. And there had been searches in this area. The hunter did not understand how on earth their remains could have, could not have been found when the searching was going on. But that was not the only question that a lot of people had. The hunter stated that when he found these remains, there was a very clear hole in one of these skulls, which was later determined to be Bobby's skull. And with this theory that had been looked into by authorities that this could potentially be a murder-suicide, people were on the edge of their seats waiting to see Oh my God, did you find Sherilyn's gun? Was this, was this the weapon that was used? But ultimately, no weapon was found in the area. So that kind of rules out this idea that it was, in fact, a murder-suicide. So we go back to there is a bullet in the back of Bobby's head. A lot of us right now are thinking homicide. But the OSBI made a statement saying that they didn't believe foul play was involved. The police said that it wasn't a bullet wound. It was more likely from an animal. But the hunter that found the remains, and if you're a hunter, you know what a bullet wound looks like. But he said, I know what it looks like when an animal's chewing on bones. And a coyote or some animal absolutely did not make that mark. At this point, the case seemed to, again, go cold. It doesn't seem that they really started actively investigating any longer. It just seems like they said, nope, this is not foul play. We're not exactly sure what it is, and there's no evidence to go off of. The investigation seemingly stopped, and so many people, especially the Jamesons family, still have questions because despite the fact that remains had now been found, the case is still technically open and still remains unsolved, according to Sherilyn's mother. She has stated in the past that she actually believes this all could be chalked up to some religious cult that 
the Satanic Bible, maybe these prayer sessions and these spirits, maybe Bobby and Sherilyn had gotten involved in something that put them in this position that led to their murders. She strongly believed that this cult has a hit list of sorts and that Sherilyn ended up on it. And remember Sherilyn's best friend, Nikki? After the disappearance documentary aired on the Jameson family, Nikki ended up getting a phone call, and it was from an anonymous woman. And this woman said that she belonged to a white supremacist group and that this group kept a book that was filled with a list of names. It was basically a collection of people that they had issues with. This woman claimed that when she would look through this book, she would try to memorize as many names as possible, and then she would go home and look up these people to try and figure out what was happening with the list, what this group was doing. And nine times out of ten, the people that she looked up, it led her straight to a missing person. So she started to believe that this group that she was a part of was offing people left and right, and she claims that one of those names on the list was none other than Sherilyn. And she said after she memorized Sherilyn's name, she went home, looked it up, and saw that not just Sherilyn, but that the entire family had gone. So she believed that it had something to do with this group that she was a part of. Nikki didn't think too much about it initially, it could just be someone calling in and wanting to be a part of this case. And unfortunately, it does happen a lot more often than you think. But after taking a second and marinating with all of this information that this anonymous woman had given her, she knew way too much information about the Jamesons for this to just be some random coincidence. Now, Bobby's mother did tell True Crime Daily in another interview, what her beliefs were. And she claimed she believed that this was, in fact, a murder, at least as when that interview was taken, and that they saw something that they weren't supposed to see, and this led to their death. And when it comes to those two theories, cults are definitely something to think about. They can be incredibly dangerous, especially if led by the wrong person. So even though it does sound like a crazy theory, I could see how it could potentially be possible. Maybe they got involved and realized it wasn't what they thought it was, and out of fear, they wanted to flee, they wanted to move out in the middle of nowhere. And then things get even more complicated when it comes to where the remains were ultimately found, because again, we're thinking we have this third party that potentially wants to harm them. Why would that person get them out of the car and then walk them three miles into incredibly difficult terrain? It's usually about 30 minutes per mile at an average walking pace. It would have taken about one and a half hours to get to this particular location, being on foot. And at that time, the fact that they're having to navigate this very treacherous landscape, it probably would have taken twice that, maybe even more. I don't see someone taking the time to walk them 
far into the woods to then kill them and then walk all the way back and leave. A lot of people believe that the money potentially was a motivator for someone, that someone wanted to steal this from them or had some issue. But if that were the case, why wasn't the money taken then? Why wasn't the car broken into? And on the subject of the $32,000, this is obviously another huge point of discussion in terms of this case. There's multiple resources out there that state that no one knows where this money came from, including the sheriff himself who worked on this case. He said that in multiple interviews that he didn't know where the Jamesons got this $32,000. However, in one interview, Bobby's mother stated that he got it from a settlement back in 2005 from his car accident, and it was actually $64,000. But he split it with Sherilyn. So that could potentially explain where this money comes from. But again, I didn't find anything that stood out to me in any of the reports. Some people found it odd that they even took that amount of money with them. But I don't really think that to be strange just because if you're going to look for a plot of land that you hope to buy, maybe they brought it thinking that they were going to get the ball rolling. They're using that money to go towards it. Maybe that's the down payment. To me, that just looks like they were ready to start their future. They were excited about it. And if you want to go back to the murder-suicide theory, again, remember there was no weapon found, no bullets found. It's also possible that they simply died from being lost and due to exposure, which is the very first theory that anyone believed. But that still leads me to wonder how on earth they even got that far in the mountains to begin with. Because remember, Bobby's back injury... And then the other theory, the strange behavior in the surveillance footage. Are we just looking too deep into that? It's very possible that all of these strange things occurring at the same time, like the house being haunted and believing that they're speaking to spirits could be something entirely unrelated to their death altogether. But at the end of the day, this is an entire family, including a six-year-old little girl, with her entire life ahead of her, and I just don't know if there will ever be answers, but I really hope that there is. I'm not sure how much further investigation can be done. I'm not sure what other answers they are able to get out of this. I just feel like they've exhausted all options, and this may just forever remain a mystery, but for the sake of the Jamesons' families, I really hope that this does not stay a cold case. I'm just happy that at least the remains were found for the family and they could bring them home. And they were able to hold a funeral service in July of 2014, shortly after the remains were found. So despite all of these looming questions that are out there, the Jameson family at least has the ability to visit them in a place of peace and that they aren't sitting on the side of a mountain. I'd love to hear what you all out there think. So email me at theconversationcabin at gmail.com. And with all of this information that you have, tell me 
what you think led to the Jameson's demise. The disappearance of Bobby and Sherilyn Jameson coupled with the strange circumstances and unanswered questions has captivated the attention of many. It is a case that continues to puzzle investigators and armchair detectives alike. As we reflect on the twists and turns of this enigma, let us not forget the human lives that were tragically lost. Our hearts go out to the Jameson family. Thank you for joining me on this gripping journey into the depths of this crazy murder case. I hope it sparked your curiosity, provoked some thoughtful discussions, and left you pondering the many what-ifs in this haunting tale. Until the next episode, stay curious, stay compassionate, and may the search for truth continue. Until next time, cabin crew, explore your strange.